It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. We're happy to have you. This week is episode 140. We're with Dr. Lane Norton, the original muscle geek, and we're talking about injury and injury risk reduction this week. We're talking about energy balance, aka calories in, calories out. We also talk about bomb calorimeters, energy budgeting, and a bunch of other cool stuff related to that topic. And then finally, we wrap up with obesity. What's causing the obesity epidemic? This is a great episode. I know you're going to love it. Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Lane Norton. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences, uh, competitive powerlifter, bodybuilder, and uh, all-around muscle science geek. I love that. I love that. I also I was wondering because in was is 2016 and maybe I think through 17 you had the world record squat as a 93 kilo. It was like 661 or something like that. 15 to 16. I oh, think. it was a year. But okay. Yeah, I, it was Worlds in 2015. I think it did last till 16. Yeah, it's like, at what point do you stop saying it? Because I think I would leave it on my resume forever. Just feel like <laughs> I had a world record squad at some point. Yeah, I, I usually say uh, either um, set at the time world record parentheses since been broken. Sure, know, sure. That sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Or I just say gold medal squat. Yeah, no, I like. I think both of those are appropriate. So, uh, yeah, we on the uh, Barbell Medicine podcast, we obviously like people who are very, very well educated, experts in their field, and then also who like walk the walk. And obviously, Lane is one of those guys that been dying to get on the podcast for a long time. One of the OGs in this space. I think we originally connected. Maybe it might have been 2010. I mean, you were at, uh, one of the original online coaches. Like yep. you were on Bodybuilding.com, like on the forum days, and so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some some good perspective here. So this this is going to be a good one. Um, all right, so let's just kick this guy off. You have been recently dealing with uh, an injury for I actually don't know how long it's been going on. Uh, can you take us through like what when did it happen and then what happened initially? So I kind of my lower back issues are a little pretty well documented. Um, it started I would say in 2015 to where it, it started really affecting me. So actually I was competing in the Arnold in 2015 in March and had won the nationals in 2014 qualified for worlds. Mm -hmm. So Arnold's was in March worlds was in June. And, uh, I was actually having my best training cycle ever leading up to, to, to the Arnold. Uh, I was doing my last heavy training session, literally one week away and, uh, just finished with squat, went over to bench press and just felt kind of tight setting up. but didn't really think much of it and got to deadlift and went ahead and did the numbers that was on my sheet again felt tight but i was kind of able to you know get through it it didn't feel too bad when i was lifting and then i got home and rested the rest of the night and woke up the next day and i couldn't even hardly move wow. um i think that's probably the first time i really got you know like some a really angry disc bulge um and fortunately was able to just through rest and you know like kind of taking it easy for a few days. It calmed down. I was, I kind of like, actually I was competing on Friday and kind of went in on, I think it was Tuesday. And I said, well, I'm just going to see if I can hit my openers. And if I can't hit my openers, we're just going to call it. Um, and went in and hit my openers felt okay. And then went and, you know, was lucky enough to win the Arnold, uh, actually <laughs> not to go too far off tangent, but, um, tied the world record at that meet um, <laughs> with the squat call. Uh, so that was disappointing. That lower back injury actually on my squat, my 661 squat where I tied it. Um, I, uh, I got a little, a little rotated coming out of the hole. I don't know if that's what caused it, but I also, so I had my low back pain that was between L4, L5, but I also had some pain that was higher up after that as well. And that kind of like bothered me on and off for a few months. And actually I got to the point where I had to take a month off of squatting and deadlifting before during my world's prep and didn't really start squatting and deadlifting until about four weeks out from worlds. So that was nerve wracking, but went on, was able to, was able to do well at worlds. Uh, and then in 2000, I won nationals again in 2015, January, 2016, I was squatting. I was on vacation squatting, and I felt a pain in my left hip on one of my reps. It started out as something that wasn't terrible. 
And then as I tried to keep working through it, it got to the point where I really couldn't squat 135 without like 10 out of 10 pain in my left hip. Right. Yeah. And I was diagnosed with bursitis. I'm pretty convinced I didn't actually have bursitis. Um, yeah. I got two cortisone shots in my hip. They didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had actually had a, some sort of torn muscle in there. And I think that's what I was, was dealing with. Um, but I got with a good physical therapist at probably the most gut-wrenching uh, moment of my career, my lifting career, is I had to pull out of Worlds in 2016, which was in the USA. My parents were going to come. My whole family was going to be there, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's really tough because, you know, for for USAPL lifters will know, but for people who aren't familiar, it is very hard to win nationals. Very, very hard. It, and now it's like a shark tank. Um, and it was hard enough when I did it. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, a hundred of the other top lifters in your weight category. And it's very, very tough. So there's no guarantees you're ever going to go back to worlds. Um, and so I had to pull out of that. Rehab that hip injury later that year. I realize I'm giving kind of chronological order, but I think it's important to understand because I think some of these issues probably bled together, to be honest. So I was rehabbing my hip, started to feel good, got to fall of 2016, and I uh, was hitting pretty close to being back to where, you know, full strength. And I was having a deadlift session where I, I hit, I did uh, 625 for sets of four. And really felt good during the session. The weight moved great. Um, and then later kind of felt some of that same tightness in my lower back that I'd felt, you know, the year before. And so I kind of like regressed big time there, you know, took a few months off of like any kind of back squatting or deadlifting and then started working back up again. Uh, got back to the point where I was able to compete in 2017 nationals Um Hit a pretty good squat. I got red lighted for, unfortunately, which uh, I hit. But I was happy. I, I hit six fifty five, and sure, it, yeah. it moved. Uh, I got a re- I got two reds for depth. I still think it was a good squat, but hey, <laughs> I probably I probably got a I got a bench call at the Arnold one year. I probably didn't deserve to get. So there's my there's my karma. Right. Um, and then um, I actually hit a seven hundred sixteen pound deadlift at that meet, which was uh, my PR at that time. But I had a I actually strained my pec probably four weeks out from the meet. And so I had to kind of take a token bench. So I really wasn't in the mix. Um, I think I was like seventh at that, that nationals. Okay. But I felt pretty good coming out of that because it was like, all right, you know, your, your, your stuff that you were worried about, your lower back, that sort of thing. Like that seems to be good. And then 2017 was like the most stressful year of my life. And I went in like, so a few months later, I've been dealing with like poor sleep, lots of stress, and aggravated my lower back again during a squat session and same sort of thing late that day i had my kids picking them up put them down and man it got that that was the worst that next day was the absolute worst i could not i was on my side the only way i could get to not 10 out of 10 pain was by laying on my side and doing nothing there were so many things going on at that time like i was going i was at the tail end of my divorce I was um, trying to kind of learn how to be a dad because I'd never been on my own before like that. And also I was, I was um, dealt with my supplement company had closed and another company I'd helped start my business partners had kicked me out and were trying to kind of force me into taking like less money than my shares were worth. And it was just a big, a big crapshoot. So I couldn't afford not to work because I was literally trying to kind of, like fight for survival, I suppose, economically. So I went and got a, a cortisone shot just so I could stand up my computer and, and send emails. Right. Um, and that's when I, like after that, shortly after that, kind of met up with Stu, Stu McGill, did some of that stuff. Um, and since then, that injury hasn't really bothered me much. Now, I did nationals in 2019. I went up a weight class to do it because I didn't want for my first uh, you know, big meet back I didn't want to have to deal with cutting weight uh, and trying to, you know, stay healthy. And I actually went into that nationals feeling pretty good um, in terms of my lower back. I, my, my pec did act up a little bit. Um, but uh, this past year, I just, I've kind of just had some like dinks and dunks that have really been nagging. Um, so I had my right hip has had some like pain on and off, but I usually can manage that through modifying tempo and um, um, 
range of motion and, and um, usually don't have to modify exercise selection too much, but it did get pretty bad there for a few weeks where I kind of had to stop squatting. Sure. Um, that seems to be improving. In fact, it's, it's interesting now. It doesn't even really hurt when I squat. Um, it mostly hurts when I just sit in the car <laughs> is where it hurts the most. <laughs> right. Um, and then um, interestingly, I had I had finished a deadlift. So let me go back. I, I cut back down to 93 because I, I felt like I could – still do well at that weight class. Um, and like just being honest, I can sell a lot more stuff when I'm lean. Oh, I, sure. I wish, I wish it wasn't that way, but I mean, it's, it's just the truth. It really yeah. is. Um, and when you own business in the fitness industry and your livelihood's based on it, and I prefer being that level of leanness too. I don't, I don't feel like I get that much more out of my total going up to, you know, two twenty or two thirty. Sure. Um, but in any case, um, I felt good through most of the cut and, um, I was actually starting to hit some numbers where I was like, Oh, this is like based on my RPEs and those sorts of things. I was really happy with where my squat and deadlift were at. And, um, I had a deadlift session where I had come in, felt fine, got a little bit out of a groove on one of my deadlifts. And then the next time I came into squat, um, I had some back pain, but it wasn't where the back pain was previously. It was kind of like, it was interesting. It was only when I went below parallel and only at the top of the movement. So mm -hmm. if I went below parallel at the top of the movement, I would get pain. But if I did like a pin squat above parallel, I wouldn't get much pain. It was really oh. weird. Um, so that has something that uh, has kind of got aggravated on and off, but I, I think I've kind of figured out how to manage that. So it's basically been that and my right hip that I've, I've kind of been dealing with. Uh, but I've actually been reading a lot of your guys' stuff, you know, about um, not necessarily taking long periods of time off and just trying to modify and, you know, desensitize yourself to pain. And obviously I'm not a pain expert. I'm, I'm trying to figure this stuff out for myself. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, – you know, I've had people tell me, well, you know, you're going to end up in a wheelchair, you know, this and that. And usually what I'll say is don't nocebo me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> don't, I don't want to believe that, you know, because if I believe that, then it might happen. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I've dealt with. And I, you know, I, I kind of look at this stuff as it's like, you know, it's a puzzle and I'm just trying to figure out how to get those pieces together. And I, you know, people have like called me injury prone and that sort of thing. And honestly, I mean, maybe I'm delusional, but I don't really feel like I'm injury prone. I feel like I probably get dinged up as much as a lot of lifters do. And I just talk about it because sure. people don't want to talk about it. Cause what happens as soon as you talk about injuries, immediately you have people in the comments saying like, almost like, well, you deserve to get injured because of X, Y, Z. It's like this right, weird right. victim blame thing where they're trying to, I think it's like people want to like, protect themselves in terms of why it won't happen to them sure and yeah. project that on other people so but I'm, I'm used to dealing with it now well yeah i mean you're obviously highly visible and then people i think in in some ways it's in, in good faith they're trying to like well i can encourage him but i also need to protect my own ego and my own sort of what's my trajectory like so if i find a reason for him to have these injuries not only does it protect themselves but it also like oh there's a you know, an Easter egg for you. You can work on that and that's going to help you. But, it, you know, I think people are looking for explanations, right? Like, well, why did Lane get hurt? He's this high level lifter. He's got all this training experience behind him. And, and even you, you're like, what is the thing or things? What are the things that I'm doing that are like making this happen? And uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. We, we don't really have satisfactory answers for, for a lot of these things. Um, you know, obviously a lot of environmental stress can change what the amount of stress you're able to tolerate. Certainly, um, you know, when the load is very, very heavy and maybe recovery is compromised and for some, for some other reason that can be, uh, an issue. The interesting thing about your whole story is like, when you're telling me the number of injuries, it doesn't actually seem out of proportion to what I would expect for a person who's actively engaging in resistance training at a high level based on the existing evidence that we have. The existing evidence is about two to four injuries per thousand participation hours for competitive, uh, both Olympic weightlifters and powerlifters. And so it's like, I mean, if you have two to four injuries per year, 
It seems reasonable. The di- The difference is how much time does it actually take to come back from? Because most of those injuries are not catastrophic For in that those data sets. They're talking about two weeks where training is altered. Yours seem to last a little bit longer, but I think some of that has to do with the compounded nature of them. Meaning like you had it, it didn't necessarily get, and I don't want to say all the way better, but it's like we did not identify, you know, what were the contributing factors to sort of mitigate them going forward. So it's like you come back and it's like, well, it's kind of the same it, it's not it's not a, a fault it's just like you can't identify these things until you get almost further removed from the situation yeah and i think you know part of my problem honestly is just you know i've been it's like my blessing and my curse you know like yep. i never would have <laughs> you know i tell people like that are like you're genetically gifted i'm like go back and look at the pictures of my legs when i was young and look at my squats and then tell me i was genetically gifted for squats yeah i, I probably like in some way yes you know but my style is not what you typically see from world record setting squatters or gold medalist squatters, you know? Although the interesting thing is, so David Ricks, I think holds the squat record now for 93. Yeah. You guys do squat very similarly. And yeah. so I, I remember when it was, it might've been the first injury, but you know, people were giving you a hard time. They're like, see, so you bend over so much, you do these yeah. pancake squats or whatever. And it's like, well, it's not like you just went into the gym one day and loaded up 600 pounds without having ever done that before. You've exposed yourself time and time and time again to that, to adapt to it. And is the technique uniquely injurious or like risky? Pr- probably not, uh, particularly if you've adapted to it. Well, now, even, if the very- even look at a guy like Mike Tushier. He's dealt with injuries. And if you'd look at Mike Tushier's technique, you'd say, oh, it's flawless. Text you know, he'd never yep. get hurt. And, and, and that's, not, that's not true. Yeah. That's the thing. So when people are like, again, looking for these reasons, why did I get hurt? And initially they want to go to technique. And it's like, I mean, if we're talking about rapid changes in movement, you know, high velocity, what I would almost consider accidents, like, sure. Okay. You know, you, you lost balance and fell. Yes. That could be a risk factor for injury. But if you're saying, well, I think I bend over too much when I squat or my backgrounds a little bit when I deadlift. It's like, yeah, but if you did a, a thousand reps of those previously, and gradually adapted yourself to that, the human body is super adaptable and resilient, and robust. But I think a lot of the times the context changes, people will have can be carrying a bunch of stress, they'll be carrying a bunch of uh, not recovering very well or have other mitigating factors, a lifestyle change. They're going through divorce, for example, or like what all these things are contributing factors, but nobody's like, yeah, that would probably contribute. They're like, actually that one time my back came out of extension and, and that was the deal. It's like, uh, it seems a little simplistic for it to be true, but, um, yeah, you'll, you see a lot of injuries in people who have great technique, whatever that means. And, and, you know, similarly, you have people who, if you look at their, their lifts, and I don't think this is you to be, to be clear, but there are people who, when they deadlift, it's full on cat back yep. that, as round as can be. Why? Cause it's mechanical advantage off the floor. I get it. And they're seemingly never injured. And you're like, how though? And it's just one of those things. It's like, maybe that's not where we start this conversation. Maybe that's yeah. not like in the triage, like where we attack. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a really great point you made in there and like I'm taken back. So I tore my right pectoral fully like away from the, uh, actually, so I actually tore it in the muscle. Oh, good. okay. Uh, so inside the muscle. Um, unfortunately, this is back in 2008. Fortunately, I had a really great um, surgeon and he was able to to reattach it. Okay. He said it was one of the most difficult pec repairs he's ever done. Because for those who don't know, trying to put you know a pec, it's so funny just to see the like. There's so much woo in nutrition. There's I would say there's more woo in injuries. Oh, like 100%, it's crazy. Hundred percent, I agree. I have people telling me just oh go get a massage. I'm like, what the like I'm gonna massage my pec back up to the tendon? Are you like, <laughs> are you stupid? Like. Come on. Um, but in any case, you know, he, fortunately, he was very, very talented guy. Um, he was able to put me back together, uh, and that held. And it's actually since been the less injurious peck. Um, so, um, but I, I asked him, you know, when I was kind of um, during my rehab, I said, you know, how do I prevent this from happening again? And he said, don't get out of bed. Yep. He said, he's honestly, he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, like take reasonable precautions, but he's like, you know, we, we've had, he, he was a surgeon for the Chicago bears. Cause I was living in Illinois at the time. Okay. He said, we had a wide receiver tear his bicep just stretching out for a pass. Yep. You know, he's like, I was like, well, was it really cold? He's like, we track wind temperature, barometric pressure. He said, all I can tell you is sometimes shit just breaks. Yeah. And 
I mean, it's like, you know, when you start your car up a thousand times, what is the thousand first time and have a problem? Right. Right. Like there's, you know, it could be a soccer player, you know, he makes the same cut a thousand times on the thousand first time his ACL blows out. Right. It's, it's, it's so difficult because you can't, for people who don't understand research, you can't really do a randomized control trial where you like try to have people get injured. (laughs) That's that's not how this works. So this is all like case study observation data. Um, and it's just like when you're doing it that way, it's just going to be really messy. It's going to be really hard to figure out like, hey, did this thing cause this thing? Well, maybe, but maybe not, yeah. you know, and I'm always reminded. So we had um, Brandon Curry, uh, 2019 Mr. Olympia on our podcast, and he was talking about how he went to the big game changing thing for him and him going from, you know, kind of like being on the outside looking in to winning the Arnold, winning the Olympia, was he said he went to Kuwait for six months. And this is a guy, he has he has like um, four kids, family man, he owns businesses. He said, I was shocked at how much training I could handle when I went to Kuwait and all I was doing was focusing on training. He's like, I was blown away by how much my body could take when I wasn't worrying about anything else. Right. And it's, you know, if I think about when I've had the most productive training for powerlifting, it was I was eating the same things every day pretty much. My day-to-day life was very similar from day to day. You know, my my I was training at the same gym. I was training at the same times. You know, is that like a recipe for success? And when did I start having problems? It's when my like going through the divorce and my routine changed and all this kind of stuff. Again, did the one cause the other? I can't say that for sure. But I think if I had to hazard a guess, a lot of it is like when your mind is on all these other things, it's hard to really focus in when you're in a training session. And then like recovery wise, if you're getting less sleep, you have more stress. I think all that stuff contributes. Now, I don't know how much, but I I would wager that all that stuff contributes. Yeah. No, we have some data on that. Uh, Most interesting study that comes to mind offhand is a study in Division I college football players. Effectively, they saw a, a spike in injury rates during finals time um yeah like the academic stress and the program chain was was unchanged um which is interesting you know all all this is like this is like rationalist type arguments where you're like all right so we have some either mechanistic data or like data that you could extrapolate a few you know a few uh steps and and maybe maybe make some informed decisions there but yeah i definitely think stress is important i definitely think your environment is important, your mood, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but as far as like, yeah, people want to figure out what's that one weird trick that's going to keep me, yeah. but I, you can't expect to be injury free. Your the surgeon was exactly right. Sometimes it do be like that. They don't think that it do, but it do. And, uh, to the extent we can, you know, reduce the risk cause we can't prevent injuries, but we could reduce the risk it would be being adapted to the stress, the things you're doing on a regular basis. And then, you know, so, so getting well-trained and then, uh, 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 being, being strong effectively, you know, that's all the data on like Nordic hamstring curls and the Copenhagen adductor protocol, all that sort of stuff. None of it says that those movements are intrinsically uniquely useful to like reducing ACL injuries or hamstring pulls and athletes. It just shows that, yeah, being stronger for those, and that those particular sports reduces the risk of injury. So it's like, yep, being well-trained, doing the stuff that you're going to be exposing yourself to regularly over and over again. If I had to put my money that that's, that would be it. And then like controlling your total training sort of stress to the extent that you can on days or weeks or months where things are like super, super, you know, cranked up to 11 on the business side or the home life side, then maybe, you know, your sessions aren't like, yeah, this is my most important training session (laughs) of the week or month. Yeah. And that's, and that I think was a big part of my problem is it was like, I tried to be Superman and just kind of grind through everything and, you know, stupidly or, or ignorantly, you know, as somebody like, you know, going through a divorce and then having all these business issues and all that kind of stuff, you know, just thinking, well, I can, I can handle this, you know, I can, I can deal with this. And it was like, you know, it probably was overwhelming a little bit. It's so tough though. It's so tough. Hindsight's always 20, oh, yeah. 20 because, yep. because part of, I think part of the reason I'm convinced part of the reason I had so much success was because I was able to within a session, convince myself, this is the most important thing you are doing. You've got to put everything into this sure. It's hard to like then disconnect that mentality that makes you successful and say, okay, this one session isn't so important because it's, it's, it's not, it's not, 
But if you carry that mentality too long, then you, you're not going to achieve, yep. right? So it's one of those things where it's kind of like knowing when to step on the gas and knowing when to like just coast a little bit. Yep. And I, I think I am getting better at that. Um, I've gotten a little bit better about saying, okay, you know, we've got this pain or we're, you know, we're a little bit more tuned up today. Or I will say like today, for example, I was, I was supposed to, I was going to squat and um, I've had a pretty stressful week yesterday in particular. And so when I, and I got okay sleep last night, but not great, but not terrible either. So I kind of went in today and was just like, I had an idea what I wanted to hit, but I said, well, let's just see, let's just see how things are feeling when I'm, when I'm warming up. Let's, let's do what we need to do and just see, see what's there. And now I think one of the other things I, that I, that helps me is I use a bar velocity device yep. just to get some more, you know, objective feedback. It's not, it's not the end all be all, you know, like if I, if I hit a fast rep as a warm up, but I'm still feeling like absolute crap, I'm not going to like, okay, let's go ham, you know? Um, but I, you know, I got up to my, my last kind of warm up single and felt like it should, and it moved actually a little bit faster than my previous weeks. And so I said, okay, we're going to go, you know, I'm going to go with the planned progression today and, you know, I'll just, you know, try to make sure I'm nice and dialed in and focused and then it was fine. That's you know, sure. I've actually had some success. I actually read an article on your guys' side. I think it was by Charlie Dixon. Oh yeah. And talking about like, you know, that exposure stress instead of just, you know, not doing a movement if it's hurting, I think it's probably a fine line. Like if I look back with my hip, that hip issue, that was something if I'd probably just taken some, a few weeks off, started slow, built back up, I might've been able to make worlds. Who knows? Maybe not. But, um, you know, I kept trying to grind through and hit my prescribed weights and it just got to the point where it was so incredibly painful. And I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't even do, um, uh, I couldn't even do 135 below parallel without a 10 out of 10 pain. But who knows? Maybe I could have done a pin squat above parallel without pain yeah. and still maintain most of my strength, right? Yeah. But, you know, I was kind of – in that moment in time, I was of the opinion, okay, I need to – like I cannot stop squatting because competition squatting is what's going to enable me to do my best on the platform. Sure. And so, you know, even as somebody who – you know, rails against being dogmatic. I've been dogmatic at certain points in my life, you know? So it's, it's, I think, uh, older and wiser now. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully still enough in the tank physically to, uh, to be able to step back on the platform and, and hit another PR. That's kind of my, my big career goal now. Yes. You, you and I have similar career goals. I like, I was like, did I really peak in 2015? Like I gotta, I need to <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's been, yeah, it's been tough. And I, uh, similar to you, I'm not tried one to make excuses like, oh, well, then I had residency and the med, like whatever. I'm just like, I'll be, you'll be fine. You're gonna be fine. And then it's like, yeah, maybe showing yourself some love and some grace is is okay too. But it's really just hard to be objective on yourself and like. Oh. So that's why, like now, if I if I have an injury, if I have something that I'm like kind of on the fence about, I'll just text one of the guys who works with us. And I'm like, what would you do? They're asking for a friend. And they're like, what did you do this time? And I'm like, <laughs> dang it. No, I mean, it's, it's so true. I, I don't like, if I was going to get ready for a bodybuilding competition, I would not handle my own nutrition. Right. right. Cause I'm just as big of a head case as anybody else. Yeah, it's not that you don't know what to do, but the, of course, yeah, it's just that you doing it for yourself and, you know, incurs a whole nother layer of complexity that be really hard to be that meta about everything. Yeah. Totally different. I mean, there's some people who can do it. Um, I think, you know, my experience was, you know, like, for example, like a Mike Touchere, who's a pretty, like, you know, pretty low key guy. He seems like he can kind of analyze things and, and, and make a more objective decision. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, when it comes to training, for me, having someone who can tell me, Hey, it's okay. You can, you know, if you're in pain, like just chill on this session. It's not a big deal. You're going to be all right. You know, um, and also having somebody to say, Hey, you're looking good, you know, kick it, you know, you're, you're good. You know, those, I think those sorts of things are really helpful. And I, I, again, it's very hard to be objective with yourself. I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, it's it's the two hardest people in the world to coach are me and my wife. (laughs) That's, That's it. 
it's, it's, it's almost impossible, you know? So I, I think that for anybody and it, it must, I'm sure it's tough for you. Like somebody, you know, who you guys kind of, you know, make a living based on like um, talking about injuries and injury prevention and whatnot. Well, if you get injured, I'm sure you have people oh, say, dude. well, you're supposed to be your expert, dude, right? Yes. Yes. Can confirm. People are like how, yeah, I guess that didn't work so well. I'm like, well, you know, yeah. sometimes it happens. Uh, yeah, well, I think people need to remember that you didn't have a random, you didn't have a control group that was randomized, sure, yeah, you know, right. people just don't, they don't understand research. And it's kind of like, well, you could say that about like any financial advisor who's ever lost money ever. All yeah. right. And I promise you all of them have at a certain point. Yeah. All right. That doesn't mean they're not good at their job. Except for Bernie Madoff, but we all know how that turned out. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Uh, I think this kind of segues nicely into some of the, uh, some of the other topics I wanted to talk about. We talked about dieting maybe for a show. And so if you guys don't follow Lane on Twitter, it, the feed is excellent, both with respect to, cause he does he post a lot of, uh, good links and, and a lot of what I would consider to be like academic rebuttals it, because people will make weird claims and you're like, actually, here's what the data shows, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes enthusiastically, cause people will say stuff that's yeah. Antagonistic and, you know, needs to be countered. Um, let's talk about energy balance for a second. Uh, with respect to weight management. So the people on the Twitter in the Twitter sphere say, well, calories don't even matter. Like calories in calories out is so outdated and blah, blah, blah. What, what are most people getting wrong about this? Like, why does that? Why is that even a thing? Well, I think the first thing is that calories are kind of an abstract concept for a lot of people sure. because you can't you can't look at them on a microscope. You know, they're not. It's calories are units of energy. Yep. Right. It's kind of like talking about you know dials on the clock or your speedometer. Right. It's a it's a unit. It's not an actual tangible thing. Right. And so people say, well. The human body is in a bomb calimeter. You know, that's, that's the one I get all the time. That's uh, true, but... Uh, <laughs> it, it is true, but actually, if you know how bomb calimeters work, you realize that they rebuke their own argument. So the reason being, and I'll, well, let, me, let me circle back real quick. So I think a lot of this confusion stems from the fact that people confuse tracking calories in yes. and attempting to track calories out as doing the CICO or, you know, my friend Mike Zorno says doing the DUP, um, you know, that, that's not calories in calories out. That's, that's, you know, that's budgeting. You're keeping a budget essentially. All right. Well, let me make a financial comparison. I, I'm an entrepreneur on several businesses. I have investments, et cetera, et cetera. It is impossible for me to know how much revenue I'm going to earn on a monthly basis. Exactly. It's also impossible for me to know exactly what my expenses are going to be because things come up, right? That being said, having a budget still helps me sure. because I have targets I can shoot from. And if my budget is, say, let's make even like easy numbers, $10,000 a month for business, for example, and we get to the end of the month and we say we were able to you know, have $2,000 that we brought over, well, then that means we were, you know, regardless of what the exact numbers were, we're, we're making more money than we spend, right? So if you've got two of the three, you, you can know what the third is anyway. Uh, and by the same token, if we were, you know, running a deficit, we, we would see that, right? So budgeting can still help. And calories is the same thing. No, you, you can't know exactly what you're taking in because food labels have a certain amount of error in them anyway. And so... Rebuttalists will always try to use that to, well, you can't even know what you're taking in. So what's the use? This is what we call a unicorn fallacy. Yep. If it's not perfect, then we just need to get rid of it. And what I always reply with is, so you're saying since we can't measure something exactly, we shouldn't even try to measure it at all. That seems really dumb. Sure. You know? So uh, there's that. Then there's people who say, well, I lost weight and I didn't track calories. And so again, they, they confuse the, the tool for the actual law of conservation of energy. And so what, I, what a lot of times I'll say is, okay, so your, your energy calories refers to the energy contained in the chemical bonds of food that is liberated during digestion, assimilation, and absorption. 
that essentially winds up as ATP, mm-hmm. that, that, that high energy phosphate. So you eat these carbons. What do you think happens to them? <laughs> do they like flutter off into oblivion? You know, do they like, can you make carbons from nothing? You know, like, of course not. Like they're, you, you take in biomass, it has to go somewhere. Right. So if we're talking about what happens to it, we're talking about energy expenditure, which is calories out, right? So, um, you know, you have your, there's different ways to assess it. Basically your BMR or REE or RMR, they're all a little subtly different, but essentially the same thing. Basically the, the amount of energy it takes to keep the lights on. Um, then you have your TEF, which is the amount of energy you expend digesting and assimilating food. Then you have your um, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which I think if people understood that more, they'd probably understand energy balance more. Because sure. when we say, well, you're moving less, people think, well, I, I went to the gym for an hour a day. What are you talking about? Meat is not something that is modifiable. In fact, this is one thing that like Lyle McDonald says this all the time. You know, He's like, well, this metabolic adaptation Lane talks about, this is all, it's, you know, it's neat. And my response is always, so what? Sure. Yeah. Neat isn't really something that you could, it's by definition, unconscious movements. You, you cannot modify it. Right. And if you're modifying it, I, I always find it funny. People say, well, I'm going to go for a walk and get my knee up. No, that's exercise. That is purposeful movement. So they've shown that neat can be modified based on like your energy intake up to like 600 calories a day. Yep. So that's huge, right? And they've actually there's some evidence that people who are what we call obese resistant, if you overfeed them, they just spontaneously start moving a ton more. And when I say moving, I'm not talking about like they're walking around the block. I'm talking about like they're fidgeting, they're making small movements, you know, those sorts of things. And and believe it or not, that actually adds up to quite a bit of energy expenditure at the end of the day. And then you have thermogenesis, which is where you're like wasting energy and it's given off as heat. Um, you know, some people like the real life example is the person who eats food and then they start sweating like crazy, you know, uh, and then you, of course, you have exercise activity. Um, and so people don't really understand, you know, those sorts of things. They don't they don't really get that. OK, the law of conservation says if you take in this this biomass, something must happen to it. Right. It can be transferred to energy, you know, those sorts of things. But you can't just get rid of it. And when people say, well, bringing back to the bomb chlorometer, well, human body is the bomb chlorometer. Let's examine that for a second. So what they're saying is it's not a closed system. That's true. The human body is not a closed system, but only the chamber of the bomb chlorometer is a closed system. Okay. So here's the thing about a bomb chlorometer. Um, If you, so basically a bomb chlorometer is how they measure the calories that's in a, a certain food. And you basically just vaporize the food, you burn it, and you see how much energy is given off. Well, that energy in the chamber affects another layer of the inner chamber where there's a thermometer in water, basically. And based on how much the temperature of the water moves is how much energy is in that food. Okay, cool. Well, think about this for a second. You give off heat and uh, thermogenesis you give that off, you waste energy as part of your BMR, as part of meat, as part of your TEF. Those, the fact that the human body is in a closed system is already accounted for in energy balance. Yep. That's already accounted for. And even though it, your your body's not a closed system, I actually had this on, uh, I think you saw that on Twitter the other day. I asked somebody, I'm like, do you believe that the human body exists in the universe? <laughs> She's like, and the person refused to answer my question. Right, right. So the universe is the outer ring of your bomb collimeter, right? Okay, so you exist in the universe. No, your body isn't a closed system, but the universe is. Therefore, that biomass you take in, that energy must go somewhere, whether it's being used for like movement and whatnot, whether it's excreted in you know urine, breath, feces, or sweat, that's another thing, or whether or not uh, you just give it off as you know excess energy as part of thermogenesis. Yep. So um, again, basically it boils down to you have to understand if kind of like the whole, well, I was in an energy deficit, I didn't lose weight. No, 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 no. You, you weren't in an energy deficit. 
And I think the other thing that kind of confuses people is people weigh themselves really randomly and then like use that to kind of like, well, you know, I was on a calorie deficit. I didn't lose weight. And then I went on a keto diet and I lost five pounds and I, I was eating more. Okay. Well, let's examine that for a second. Right. So first off, if you weigh in sporadically and at sporadic times of the day, no wonder you don't understand energy balance. Sure. So when I look at like client data in our, like our app carbon diet coach, when it assesses client data, we say specifically, you are to weigh in in the morning. First thing after you voided your bladder and your bowel, if you can, okay. And we recommend weighing in every single day because we're going to take the average of those weights mm -hmm. as what your weight is. Because if you, anybody who's ever tracked body weight, you'll fluctuate one, even 2% on a daily basis. Yep. But if you look at the average, it doesn't fluctuate very much because daily fluctuations are driven by fluid, but weekly changes are driven by mass mostly. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's part of it. Now, so if you were, you know, were weighing yourself in the morning one day and then you waited three days and you had like more sodium the day before and more water, didn't sleep as much, and then you weigh in the afternoon the next day and you're like, oh, I've been in a you know, calorie deficit for half a week, but look, I'm up two pounds. When in reality, if you'd weighed yourself every single day, maybe your average would have been down a pound, sure, yeah. right? Same token, they go on a ketogenic diet, they lose a bunch of water weight because that's that's that it that's one thing it does very well is you'll lose weight pretty quickly due to water, uh, and then they say, oh well, look, I, I was eating you know more, and I I actually lost weight, and they weren't even eating more; they just felt like they were eating greater volume of food. So, I think those are some of the the issues that people struggle with trying to understand energy balance and, and why it applies. Yeah. I agree. I think that also just a straight up confusion, like that the law of energy balance is the behavioral change that we're all advocating for. It's like, yeah, yeah we mean count calories. Like, no, but that doesn't mean they no. don't exist. Some people might yeah. like the, you know, this energy budget or, or even tr tracking to some degree, even though we know it's not super accurate for most folks, unless they have access to laboratory instruments and <laughs> some sort of regiment. Um, but it could be precise enough to get the job done if people find that beneficial. But I'll give you an example that I like to use and maybe less applicable after last year. But I always <laughs> say, um, so um, if you listen to are you a fan of NFL? Oh, yeah, sure. OK, so if you listen to a lot of head coaches, what they'll say is like, this is what we do. We run the ball. We play defense or we're a passing team or we're this or we're that. That is the that is getting hung up on a tool. OK, so what, what is the what is the law? The law is to win a football game, you need to score more points than your opponent scores. Now, you can do that through scoring a ton of points, and they can score a ton of points as long as you score more than them, or you can beat them three to nothing. Right. Right? Either way, you still win. That's Think of that as the law. Now, what your team does is a strategy. That's the tool. Yeah. Now, what I appreciated about Bill Belichick for a long time was – he did not care about the tool. <laughs> He'd say, we'll run it 80 times in a game, and then we'll throw it 80 times the next game because I don't care how we win the game. I just care if we win the game. And I look at that from a coaching perspective as when I'm trying to coach a person for weight loss, uh, counting calories, for example, that's just a tool. Now, I find it to be a very, very helpful tool for a lot of people because the vast majority of people don't have a good idea about portion size. No, that's, that is one thing that like, if you've ever tracked your food, obviously if you want to be depressed, go away out of serving of ice cream, go away out of serving of cereal, peanut butter, yeah. go away out of serving of peanut butter. You know, that's, you know, no, you're not eating 1200 calories, and not losing weight. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like it's, it's probably not it. And I even used to say that sort of stuff until I like really like dug into the research on it. Um, so, it's a tool. Is it a useful tool? Certainly. Is it the only way to do it? Absolutely not. There's other ways that you can do it. And depending on the individual person's psychology and what they prefer, it may not be the best tool for them. However, we need to be very clear. Whatever methodology you use still follows the rule. You have to score more points than the team, the other team to win, yeah. right? You have to expend more energy than you are taking in to create weight loss. Yep. That is, that's non-negotiable. 
period. That's there's no debate about that in the scientific community. That's the rule. Yeah. Uh, I was try- actually trying to think of examples where you didn't have to be in an energy deficit to lose weight. So I, c- I came up with like, well, if you have congestive heart failure and you have a bunch of edema <laughs> and so they put you on some diuretics to get the fluid off. Sure. That works. Um, yeah. Large other like water only shifts or, or fluid yeah. only shifts. But all those are, all those are going to be short term. Correct. Yes. So all those are going to be short term. Yep. Yeah. So just as far as when you look at long term sustained or maintained weight loss, it's going to be due to an energy deficit that was accumulated at some point. Same thing with the energy, uh, with weight gain too, right? So long-term sustained weight gain is an energy surplus that happened at some, some time. I actually had a conversation with this person who I consider to be intelligent and, uh, we were talking about, uh, obesity and I was like, uh, I, it said something to the effect of, yes, the, the issue with obesity isn't necessarily, that they're in a calorie surplus. They, they were at a calorie surplus at some point, but then they, they've gained the weight and, and they're maintaining this energy balance while in the obese state without any sort of compensatory sort of reaction. You know, if, if we assume that that's an abnormal response, then where are the, these compensatory, you know, regulators of appetite, of energy intake, of whatever? Because they're not, we're not seeing that. People are basically just maintaining this new higher body weight at a body fat that's far above normal. And she goes, well, no, of course they're in a calorie surplus. And I'm like, well, not actively because they're not gaining weight. If they're weight neutral, they're by definition in, in energy balance. She goes, doesn't make any sense. And I was like, oh boy. All right. So we got, <laughs> let's go back to this. Yeah, you, have to, you have to always think about like weight reduced versus, you know, current or previous weight. Like the, all these things matter. Yep. And now a lot of that actually gets very technically difficult to understand when you're dealing with things like W labeled water mm-hmm. uh, and isotope research where, you know, what you make the comparison to actually makes a difference in terms of like the, the value you're going to get back. In fact, this is a big, there's actually a big deal uh, in a recent paper from uh, Ludwig about like comparisons they made to post diet weight versus baseline mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. But in any case, um, yeah, I think a lot of that, you know, it's just very hard to understand. And I think with the compensatory stuff, there are compensatory mechanisms that, that try to stop us from getting too fat. The, the uh, John Speakman had a good paper on oh, this, yeah. talking about this. And, and from my understanding of it was basically the following. And I, I don't know if this is true, but it, to me, a dangerous phrase, <laughs> coming up, it makes sense. Um, and that's, you know, if you look at, what are the worst outcomes on both ends? So the worst outcome of an energy deficit is starvation. Mm-hmm. That's guaranteed death, right? The worst outcome, evolutionary speaking, from an energy surplus is the risk of predation. Yeah, someone's going to eat you. Yeah. Right. You become uh, – or, you know, you you would not be able, like agile enough to hunt food, that sort of thing. But that would be like a self-limiting thing because eventually you would become agile enough because you wouldn't be eating. Right. Um, but – if we look at like when did the when did both of those things stop being a problem? Well, the risk of predation really kind of went to near zero. I mean, it's never absolute zero because we still have people get eaten by sharks and you know yeah, right. mangled by lions every once in a while. But it's it's basically zero. Ever ever since we learned how to use tools, the risk of predation dropped precipitously. Mm-hmm. But the risk of starvation is still very real, even in some countries and even in the United States, you know, within the last hundred years was still a real problem. So if you think about what's encoded in our genetic material in terms of where the emphasis would be, it makes sense that there'd be much tighter regulations on trying to prevent an energy deficit as opposed to trying to prevent an energy surplus. And I I think that that makes sense to me. It it could, it might not be the reason, but it, it seems to make sense in terms of what we've seen. Yeah, it's like a genetic drift towards a, a basically a, a, a population that has almost nullified those adaptations to prevent us from getting, uh, you know, becoming too obese. Because it, you, you'd rather have that as the outcome, you know, like oh, you can accumulate more and more adiposity uh, versus have any risk of starving, given the like what our selection pressures are at this at this time. I, I remember reading that article and I, my jaw, I was like. What? Yeah. What? Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Interesting. It's interesting to think about anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, cause if you look at obese people, I mean, they do have higher energy expenditure yep. than you would, um, than you would predict. Um, not as high as somebody with the same biomass who has more lean mass than they do. 
But adipose is not a, a people used to think of adipose is just like a an inert tissue, yeah. and we now know that is not true at all. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's basically an endocrine organ. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know we've really learned a lot about obesity, but honestly, we're scratching the surface on a lot of this stuff. And I think another thing that confuses a lot of people is people want to attribute it to one thing. It's either gluttony or it's because of economics or it's because of social structure or it's because of, um, you know, uh, hunger or it's because of – and the reality is it's probably all these things coming together. You know, people – well, it's hyperpalatable food. Well, yeah, I mean that – absolutely huge role, Um, you know, but – uh, I'm very fond of what my PhD advisor used to say. He said, genetics only loads the gun for obesity. It's behavior that pulls the trigger. But the, I, I think people hear that, and what they hear is all obese people are lazy, gluttonous sloths. And that's not the message. I think what people need to understand is the threshold for pulling that trigger for obesity is much lower now yeah, yeah. because of – because we are so sedentary as a society, because things are so accessible, like even think about the 1950s, right? Like there were hyperpalatable foods available, absolutely, but you had to go to a bake shop, yeah, or you had to bake it yourself, right? Now we have these hyperpalatable foods that are readily available, very very cheap, um, and I mean that's that's probably a really big part of it, yeah. But people kind of – it's like any issue, people take it and they just go to the extreme, right? So it's its not – it's so strange. It's not enough to just say, well, this food is hyperpalatable. People eat too much of it because that's not sexy enough. It has to be, well, you know, it also causes a high insulin release, which makes you trap fat in fat cells and this and that. And it's like if you look at this data, it just – I'm sorry, like there, we have a lot of really strictly controlled RCTs, like just take sugar, for example. There was a study back in 2001. I, to me, I'm like, okay, this, this, this issue was closed back in 2001. They had people in a, in a, I think it was a 1700 calorie diet a day, same exact macronutrients. The only difference was one group ate about 10 grams of sugar a day and the other group ate over 100 grams of sugar a day and they lost the exact same amount of fat over a 12 week period. So to me, that's that's it. Like that's done. You know, it's very and other studies have borne that out. But it's it's like you see this with all diet tribes virtually. I think one of the appeals of some of these diet tribes and one of the things they all have in common is they kind of give the it's not your fault at all. There's no personal responsibility here. It's all carbs or it's the evil food industry or it's animal products, or it's X, Y, Z, right? It's it's almost like inviting people because it's they're saying, no, 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 it's, it's, there's no responsibility on your part. It's all, it's the government or it's the food industry or whatever. And I think the message we should be sending people that's more empowering is yes, this stuff all matters. Like your, 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 your upbringing matters, your genetics matter. Your true the trauma matters. Um, you know all the your socioeconomic standing, all that stuff matters. But your choices also matter. Yeah. And and you can and I always I I I got called ableist the other day, and I said you're damn right I am because <laughs> yeah. like what is what is the message we need to send people that there's because if nobody's responsible for anything, then also we can't make change. We have no power to create change. So I think the message should be. Yes, the barrier is lower. It's easier to overconsume now than it ever has been, but it is modifiable and you can change it. It just takes a lot of behavior therapy, right? If you look at it, it's kind of like any like psychological therapy in terms of how it works. Like there's no magic. If you go speak to actual like expert psychologists, if you could have some kind of like traumatic experience or PTSD or whatever, and they can tell you, you can get better so that this doesn't rule your life, but it takes a lot of work. Sure. It takes a lot of work, a lot of behavior change. And that's the same thing with obesity, but people don't want to hear that. They want to hear the really simple answer. That's quick. 
that gets him in and out and and maybe doesn't feel so attacking. So I, I think that's a lot of what we're struggling with. It's the same thing with injury, obviously. Which I, the a phrase I like for, that I use all the time is that, you know, the bad news is that the complexity of the topic makes it difficult to understand. But the good news is that same complexity allows like multiple different interventions that can work. And, and so yeah. in this case, it's like you have all these, co- you know, contributing factors, which I, the way I view that is like, it, it's probably not the individual's quote unquote fault. If we're like ascribing blame for genes or, you know, their upbringing or what, like, it's probably not their fault, but it also is still the responsibility. So people hear fault and they immediately assume, Oh, if you're just letting people off the hook and it's like, well, there are a lot of things outside of your purview or outside of your control, right? You had no real, you couldn't choose, but it's still your responsibility to take that and make, you know, something good happen from it. And so that's all, yeah, behavioral change, different interventions. And as you just said, due to the complexity, there's a lot of different targets there. Um, and if people want to call you ableist or me ableist, I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> good, thank you. Uh, Will, Will Smith said something that it was for a different topic, but it still applies. And he said, um, no matter who hurt you or what they did to you, we always want to make it the responsibility of whose fault it is to, to fix us or to fix it. Mm-hmm. And the reality is no matter who's harmed you or what's harmed you, the responsibility for healing is always on ourselves. Yes. There's nothing that other person or other thing can do that's going to make it right for us. We have to make it right for ourselves. And that's exactly what you just said with regards to injury. I can't help what happened. You know, I like I could sit here and woe is me about, well, I, you know, I, got, I had to pull out of Worlds in 2016. Maybe I could have won. I had this back issue. I have pain, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Maybe there's some things I couldn't help. But moving forward, like it's all on me. Like I have to figure this out, right? Like I have to do the work mm-hmm. uh, and figuring it out. Uh, if I want to get back on the platform and be able to do well, then it, then the responsibility is on me. Nobody's going to do it for me. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's a really, for me, that's not an intimidating message just because of like, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you're on your own business for a long time and you've been a competitive athlete, you realize that it's on you. Sure. <laughs> But I think for a lot of people who don't have those experiences, it's a very intimidating thing to to, to kind of take that self ownership and say, okay, yes, it's on me because now if it doesn't work out, now you feel like, okay, I, I screwed up somehow. Yeah. But no, it's it's very it's very very tough. You know, it's like um, people will ask me. It's funny because I I know that you have differences with, for example, Stu McGill and, and whatnot. And people ask me about like, you know, going to him they're like, oh, well, that seemed like a work. I'm like, yeah, but I also didn't have a control group. Sure. I don't know. Maybe if I had just done anything else, I would have had the same outcome. I don't know. Now, do I think it probably helped? I, you know, probably a little bit. Who knows? I, there's no way to quantify it, right? Probably what, based on what I've read now, probably what matters more is that I believed it was going to work. Yes. 100%. You know what I mean? Yep. And um, I think that, you know, we the, the power of placebo, it's kind of like a good thing and a bad thing, understanding the power of placebo, because now I can never placebo myself again. <laughs> anything I look at, I'm just like, eh, is that real or is it just placebo, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and people don't really appreciate how powerful that is. And it explains a lot of stuff. People say, man, I tried everything and I did X and it completely changed it for me. So I want to give a couple examples real quick because I know we're kind of running short on time. But sure. So they've basically shown that placebo literally is as powerful as drugs. Yep. So I'm going to give you guys a couple of examples. So there was a study done a while back. Uh, Greg Knuckles talked about this. They basically they – they measured several things, but I'm just going to use one hormone. They measured ghrelin. So they, or they, they looked at polymorphisms on genes of people who would – be categorized as high secretors of ghrelin or low secretors of ghrelin. Now, ghrelin is a hormone that makes you hungry, okay? So it tells you to eat. So they knew what these people's genetics were, and then they randomly told them what they were. So meaning you had people that had were low secretors of ghrelin told they were low. You had low secretors told they were high. You had high secretors told they were low, and you had high secretors told they were high. What it what they found was it almost it basically their genetics didn't matter. What matters is what they told them. Yep. And not only that, so 
people will hear that and they'll hear placebo and they'll think, oh, somebody thinks I'm lying or I'm just, it's just a feeling. No, no. Their actual hormonal levels changed mm-hmm. when they told them. Yep. Now that's not like, I can't do that. Like I can't just be like, hey, make more growth. <laughs> like that's not how that works, right? That's completely subconscious. So that we used to think like your brain was connected to your body and your body is basically just a bag of meat. You know, if you do stuff to the bag, it tells your brain and then your brain tells ow, owie, you know, whatever. Um, now we know it doesn't work like that at all. Right. There's all kinds of crosstalk and weird stuff. And uh, another example, so I uh, just thought about this. They did a caffeine trial. Now we know caffeine improves performance. That's very consistent in the literature. So they had four groups. Uh, no caffeine, told they got no caffeine. No caffeine, told they got caffeine. Caffeine, told they didn't get caffeine. And caffeine, and told they got caffeine. And what they found is the same thing. It did not matter if they gave them caffeine. What matters is what they told them. Now, people will hear that and say, well, does that mean caffeine's bullshit? No, it just means that your feelings about what caffeine does are more powerful than what it actually does. Yes. Right? So that's like when people say, well, I took this supplement and it maybe, right? Maybe. And this is from a guy who owns a supplement company. Right, right. Okay. Um, you just, I think the way, what I would tell people is be open to the idea that anything can work, but also be open to the idea that it could be this, you know? Yep. So you don't get, so that you don't get dogmatic about it. Cause that's really important and, and recognize that, when we say what works for you might not work for somebody else, I think at a practical level that's true. But most people want to make that physiological. They're like, oh, well, this this diet just didn't work for my body. No, it probably didn't work for your psychology. Right. It's much more likely. Right. Um, you know, you, you trip that compliance algorithm that I call it. Like I hear it all the time. People say, oh, I did intermittent fasting, felt like I wasn't even dieting. I did keto, felt like I wasn't dieting. For me, I did flexible dieting, felt like I wasn't dieting until I got really lean, you know? So like in terms of diet, whatever trips that is best and probably in lifting too, like there's, there's some things, you know, like I think it's important to switch your training program every once in a while, just so you're excited about it. You know what I mean? Like I'm about to work with a, um, a new coach here coming up. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm probably going to make progress just because I'm excited to try a new methodology, sure. you know, um, and that we call that the, the honeymoon phase of, of trying <laughs> something new. So, again, like understand that uh, and use that to your advantage when you're doing things for yourself. But just be really careful about then trying to apply what worked for you to somebody else. Right. Yeah, I think people view placebo as like a dirty word, like it's bad. It's like anything anything that works has some element of placebo, basically your mindset allowing it to work, your psychology allowing it to work, even things that are like very, very physiological based like antibiotics. It's like, look, man, you're going to have better outcomes and faster improvements rates, et cetera, if you believe this to be working for you. And it's like, yeah, but it, well, but that's just placebo. It's like, I mean, yeah, but to the extent that, yeah, right, to, to the extent that that playing up the placebo effect does not cause additional harm. Like I'm all for it. I think when you're hyping up a placebo effect that maybe causes some undue risk from either building a harmful narrative or whatever. Yeah. But that'd be a very rare sort of, sort of thing. Um, in most circles, uh, dude. Yeah. There was more here, but I feel like we could talk, (laughs) we could talk for, for hours, man. I I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Um, I want to make sure that people can find you, outside of just your Twitter feed, where, where are all the places you're on the internet that uh, people can connect with you? Yeah, pretty much at BioLane on pretty much every platform. Uh, the only exception to that is my Facebook page is facebook.com slash Lane Norton. And then the website is BioLane. Um, you know, we have um, kind of the stuff we, here comes Shillology 101, but uh, we, we offer uh, customizable training templates uh, on our workout builder at BioLane.com for $12.99 a month. And then we have our nutrition coaching app, which is uh, $9.99 a month, and that's called Carbon Diet Coach, and that's on uh, iOS and Android. Uh, that is actually, like, absolutely blowing up and doing phenomenal. Awesome. And I'm sure you've probably seen some of the tweets from people who are super happy about it. Um, and then we also do offer one-on-one coaching through Team BioLane, so people who need kind of a, a little bit more of a deeper level of uh, assistance, we do offer that. 
Um, and you can find that on biolane.com as well. We have um, a half dozen very well qualified coaches that we have trained in our methods and we trust to, to convey those methods. And then uh, also my sellout supplement company. <laughs> so uh, we have uh, our nutrition, which uh, honestly uh, evidence-based products dosed appropriately um, and that taste good. Nothing, nothing crazy in terms of it's not, you're not going to go find ingredients that you've never seen before, but accurate dosages for actually improving performance and recovery. There you go, guys. See, we're not a silo here at Barbell Medicine. We're not just shilling our own stuff. We'll shill other people's stuff too. As long as, <laughs> as, long as we trust them and we feel like they're putting out good stuff. So Lane, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, appreciate your time, man. Thanks, Jordan. I had fun. Thanks. All right, that's a wrap on episode 140 with Dr. Lane Norton. Big shout out to him for coming on the podcast. I've linked all of his stuff in the description below, so check that out. But before you go, make sure you leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week and every week here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya.